Well, hi folks, welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is Ken and Charlie. We're both just back from uh, some pretty extensive travels all around the world, uh, but Charlie's back home in Thailand, I believe, and I'm back home in Madagascar, at least for the moment. So uh, Nice to be back. Yeah, it'll be good to chat again. Uh, we have lots yeah. to catch up on. Actually, personally, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of stories we haven't sort of caught up on, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely produce a few episodes of the podcast about our travels around the world. But for today, we're going to chat about Ghana. Uh, you, you just guided a tour in Ghana, 18 days or something, right? Yep, and, yep. And that's a place I've guided a few tours. I actually sort of piloted uh, Tropical Birding's Ghana tour. I went there for the first time and was part of uh, the group of people that actually found Egyptian plover there for the first time in a place that oh, was wow. accessible for birding tours. And so that's become one of the two big draw cards of that tour is the Picathartes and the Egyptian plover, which I'm sure you saw. So yeah, yeah well, I guess the format of our episode today is going to be five highlights from your trip and you're going to tell them in chronological order. Where have you been? You've been in the Neotropics and in California and then Ghana, and then you were in South Africa. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty crazy. I I'm sort of meeting friends in Thailand now, and they were like, "Where have you been?" And I'm like, "You know, can I even remember all these countries that I've been to?" So from when I left Thailand, it went Namibia, South Africa, UK, Colombia, Ecuador, Costa Rica, USA. South Africa, Ghana, and then back to Thailand. So that's uh, <laughs> it's a pretty crazy bunch of countries. Make it up for lost time. Yeah, quite. But um, yeah, it's certainly nice to be back. I was wondering how it, it felt to be back in, in Thailand after all that. It's. Uh... I was almost in tears, to be honest. <laughs> this was just getting back into the country. I wasn't there long. I was only there a few minutes and there were just these people being polite and friendly and just so helpful. So I had a bunch of big bags with me and then I took a, a, a domestic flight that I had a smaller baggage allowance, but they have a post office inside the airport terminal and they've got all these boxes and people help you pack stuff. So I just threw a bunch of heavy stuff and books in there and they were just helping me and wrapping stuff up and and just being really friendly and I, I had a big lump in my throat I was like you know this just, I'm just not used to this <laughs> yeah. um, level of attention and friendliness and I, it just felt so nice and I I went into the first cafe I could find for a little green tea and um, and a pad thai and oh I, I just I was so I had a big smile on my face for the first 24 hours it was just amazing it just felt I'm just back home yeah so Great. So I've never Very lived familiar. in Thailand, but it does have this mm. weird home-like feeling to me. I've spent enough time there that it's quite a yeah, quite close to my heart. And and I I usually have that moment when I sit down with a big green curry in front of me, and it's just like the most <laughs> unbelievably delicious thing you can imagine. And it's just like oh man, yeah. I'm back in Thailand. Mm. I definitely I miss it. It's, it's been great. like three years now. Hard yeah, to believe. I'm away from home. Yeah great place all right well as wonderful as thailand is today we're going to talk about a very different <laughs> place which is also great in its own right which is ghana um, this is for people who don't know this is a country in west africa there's this whole like filing drawer of sort of vertical countries 
uh, along the coast of West Africa. Um, it's probably one of many, or, or your average person's haziest areas of global geography, I'm guessing. Like very few people know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. even I have to remind myself sometimes, you know, what the neighboring countries to Ghana are, and like what, you know, where's Togo and where's uh, Cote d'Ivoire. And, you know, it's, it's, it is hazy even for somebody with good global geography. But, um, yeah. I think I've got it down. I'm, I'm, I'm most hazy on Eastern Europe and the stands, Central Asia. Right. That's my haziest uh, right. global geography. I think I could pretty yeah. much do a, a world map for everywhere except that. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's in kind of the central, central, bench of that whole that west african coast is sometimes called the gold coast and yeah. um i guess it was a former british colony yes. uh, so it's very english speaking and it's yeah it's quite a quite a welcoming and they, place and they love it's, they mean, love red tape they love bureaucracy i think that's a little um, british legacy yeah <laughs> you know it's west africa is quite a challenging place by any standard to visit um, in general, but I think within that region, Ghana is really a standout country in terms of being quite quite easy to get to, and, and you know, not that many hassles, and decent infrastructure, and hotels, and the people are quite friendly, and so it's really is is quite a gem within that region, and it gives you access to some oh, really I, really amazing. Can I just mention birds. one little one little difficulty that I had before I got there? Yeah. So so I had 10 days. I got back into South Africa from the States, from California. And I had 10 days. And I was in the Johannesburg area. There's a Ghana embassy there. that, And I knew maybe it takes a couple of days, two, three days to get a, to get a visa. I heard there was an online application now. So I thought, oh, it's going to be quite quick. And I got back and I went to start the application. And then I read, like in the small print, um, only citizens and legal residents of South Africa can apply at the Ghana embassy in South Africa. And I used to be a legal resident because I used to have a, you know, I used to have a, um, a residence permit when I right. lived in South Africa, but you know, now moving to Thailand, I don't anymore. And I was like, Oh, so what am I going to do? So, and of course the, the ground agent who's wonderful, you know, had the episode last week, um, with, uh, the guy that started that, uh, Mark Williams, um, they we got them on the case and they sorted out a sort of last minute entry on arrival. But it it really kind of annoys me because I I'm very into just kind of freedom of movement um, around the world. I, I I would just love to go anywhere I want with no hassle at all. That's my that's my utopia. Um, and to still in this day and age have to go actually physically go to an embassy to physically get a visa. It just seems it just seems so archaic because like most countries have moved to some sort of online application or just visa on arrival or you know, and then to be told that I couldn't yeah you had to go to the embassy but I wasn't even allowed to do that it was like ridiculous so we ended up having to pay some huge amount of money for this very special permission to get a visa on arrival um, so that was a bit and then of course they said that's going to take a week you know and it was only I only had a week. And it was it was down to the last working day. It was like a Friday, and I was leaving on the Sunday. And um, and they said that you should be getting it today. And I was like, well, if I don't, you know, I'm not going to be able to get on my plane, and I'm not going to be able to lead this tour. And luckily, you know, sort of midday or early afternoon, they got this email back saying, no, here's your visa on arrival. Um, so that was a bit stressful. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it is it is fairly well organized and and easier than some countries, but also not that easy. <laughs> right. I, I think I'm judging this by the yardstick of the region as a whole, which is uh, yeah. one of the most challenging places in the whole world. So yeah, it could clearly be a lot better. Although at the same time, you know, you found that you didn't qualify for the one kind of visa, and then you were able to make a plan. Like that's what I usually find about places like madagascar yeah. ghana is that like yeah there are hassles but there's this a certain flexibility which i also appreciate yeah. like with with these kind of systems in the u.s like if you don't qualify or you don't jump through the right hoops it's just not gonna happen it. it's just no no yeah. flexibility so yeah. well i can imagine that was pretty stressful right up to the the day before you're supposed to be getting this trip <laughs> but yeah uh, well, let's jump into the highlights. Uh, you have, you know, we like the top five format. I think that's like not vibes. much of a secret. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going for the the Cinco. Cinco highlights. Yeah. Now, these are in chronological order rather than in uh, order of, of greatness. So I guess you started the tour in Kakum National Park, and that's your first uh, highlight. Yeah, that was one of the first um, spots. So one of the really cool things about Ghana, one of the sort of coolest places just from a you know not th- not not about what you see but just the actual experience is this canopy walkway they have at Kakam National Park and basically you kind of walk up this hill and then you go out onto a platform and then there's like I think there's maybe seven huge trees that had these little platforms in them and between them they have these little suspended walkways which are like a they're, they're like wires that go between them and then there's like a net in like a v-shape and they put a metal ladder in the base of the net and then put planks on the ladder so you're walking on planks suspended in these little v-shaped nets between huge trees if that makes any sense well you've been there so you know what it's like but is that a, is that a fair description that's of it? a good description yeah it is a mm. walking on those things is an unusual sensation you're kind of bouncing up and down and <laughs> Um, the the actual I walkways think, are not very good for birding because they're not stable enough. Yeah. But but the towers are fantastic. So it kind of always surprises me how people respond in very different ways to being high up. Some people are just very nervous, you know. They maybe have vertigo or they just feel unstable on these things. Or um, so some people were just herring across them, and other people were just like shaking and too terrified to look down you know and um but uh anyway we all made it across i think there's yeah there's seven walkways there's maybe like five main platforms and you go you know you go to the first one you spend 10 15 minutes or half an hour whatever and you know you're hoping like a, a mixed flock will come across i mean normally i mean the thing is so you can actually see things that are up in the canopy normally if you're down below looking up you know straining your neck getting wobbler neck as, as bird watchers say you know and and trying to see these tiny little canopy birds from you know 100 150 feet you know down down low you know it's it's a real advantage to be up um, up there so if you get a bunch of birds coming by it can be amazing um but we had a whole day there we had a morning and an afternoon the morning was was pretty good we saw quite a few flocks and quite a few cool birds but um in the afternoon, you occasionally get these these huge hornbills, these big casked, black cast hornbills, flying by and coming to roost. So that was a big target in the afternoon when we went there. 
in the morning we had the pretty much the place to ourselves. You know, there was a few small groups of of um, of people, but you know, the, the non-birders they don't they just kind of walk around. It's more like the experience of being up in the air. And um, bird yep. watchers will spend you know hours out there. But in the afternoon yep. we start. I think we got to the first platform. And I was telling everybody the last time I was there, there was a school group of like hundreds of kids and it was a bit of a nightmare. And everybody's like, well, I hope that doesn't happen this time kind of thing. And of course, there was this huge group. It wasn't a school group. They were like young adults. I don't know if they were university students or maybe a church group or something like that, but probably a couple of hundred, two or three hundred people came by in groups of 20. And we were stuck on this platform with this is nonstop passage of, of humanity going around shouting and whooping and making jokes and and shaking the platforms and oh, it was just an absolute nightmare um so <laughs> and it just went on and on and on i think we had to just stand on one side for like an hour while all these people just uh. just pass pass by it was a nightmare and then there was and some of these you know some of these people were really terrified and there was this one girl and she was really scared and this young man he, he sort of took her by the hand and he, he was walking backwards all the way around and uh, and you could tell there was some you know this was the start of some kind of like big romance there I think <laughs> they, they, there was definitely uh, electricity in the air um, but there was lots of hand holding and smiles and stuff which was uh, which was pretty cool but um, anyway we, we we got to the end finally and this is late afternoon by now it's maybe like 4 30 5 p.m and it was pretty quiet it was pretty dead but finally we heard this kind of loud uh, honking and um and then these huge hornbills kind of flew by and they they kind of dropped down fairly close you know we were looking through the scope but like a really pretty good view so that was um after we thought the whole afternoon was a write-off with these masses of people, we actually managed to see these really, these really cool birds. But I mean, I guess you've been up there quite a few times as well, eh? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had the whole school group experience. My my typical experience is you get there at the crack of dawn. It's just magical for yeah. about an hour and a half, two hours, and then the school yeah. groups start flowing in, and then that's just time to get off of there. And uh, yeah, I often do some birding down on the trails in the forest understory inside the forest. But yeah, yeah. It's, it is a great place. Um, one of the better places to get photos in Ghana, which is an exceptionally difficult place for bird photography. Yeah, I once I got a photo yeah. of this bird, uh, Western bearded greenbull, which is a kind of an understory, uh-huh. lower midstory bird. But uh-huh. I was on the canopy walkway, and this thing was straight below me. So I got this bizarre photo of this thing. It's like a, you know, like a map, but like a topographical, like, and then you can see the the big puffy throat beard, like puffing out on the sides, like as you're looking down straight on the top of the head. It's pretty, pretty bizarre. Different kind of of rainforest birding. So that that kind of rainforest, you know, so from the canopy, you see all these canopy species, often a little far away and small and quick moving but yeah down inside the forest the forest interior species is just so dark and even to see stuff a lot of the stuff is very skulking and um, hard to see so it's it's tough birding yeah but um can be quite rewarding too oh it's it's one of those places where it's, it's a bit like new guinea the quality of the birds mm. is quite amazing but you do work hard to see them and, and sometimes you don't see them all that well after having worked quite hard to see something but 
it's a place and you want I think to get a lot to. of these kind of West African forest interior birds, they're very little photographed. You look online and often there's only one or two photographs of some of these interior birds. So this is what I always think about bird photography. Everybody's going around taking pictures of the same birds, you know, going to hummingbird feeders or fruit feeders. And, and, and it's often interesting when you look on eBird, um, it tells you how many photographs there are of a particular species. And some, you know, you get some US species. I mean, there'll be like, I don't know if it goes into millions. It'll be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of photos of one species. And then you get some African forest interior species. It'll be like two or three blurred <laughs> photos, you know. So yep. as far as making a making a difference and a contribution to, to, you know, that kind of photographic database, this is pretty important stuff. Definitely. So you're next from Kakum, I guess, in the typical tour order, you moved on to Ankasa National Park, where you actually saw, it's actually, it's one of the birds with the coolest names in Africa, I reckon, <laughs> the Nkulengu <laughs> rail. So yep. grip, grip me off. Have you, so you haven't seen this, have you heard it before? I've heard it, yeah. yeah great voice. Right. So um, this is like, it's it's a big rail, you know. People know rail. It's like it's like a it's like a chicken with big long red legs, um, and you'd think something the size of a chicken would be quite easy to see. But I mean, this is like a like a phantom. I mean, it's like almost impossible to see, and and the only place people ever see it is on its on its roost at night up a tree. And um, we, we chatted. I chatted with Mark Williams last week on the interview that I did with him um, about Ankasa where Ashanti African Tours, our ground agent, had um, just built a lodge and we, we stayed at that lodge and it was, it was absolutely fantastic. But yeah, we used to camp inside the forest, which was also really cool. And on my last tour, we stayed inside the forest, we camped. And at night, I think we heard this thing or some, maybe, maybe at dawn or something like that. And I think occasionally in previous years, if they called... And they were near nearby, near enough by, the guy could just charge out and try and locate this bird while they were still calling because they don't call for, for too long. So that was the only way that you'd see them, but you'd have to be extremely lucky to do so. So I had actually heard it previously, but it seemed, and I, and I thought when this tour happened, we're outside the forest now in lodge, we're not going to hear it even, you know. Um, but it turns out one of the local drivers, because we use like Land Rovers in there because the roads are real muddy, and one of the local drivers had sort of got these birds figured out. And we had a group of four clients and myself. And there was another group there, two American ladies, and they had another driver and another guide. And that other driver had taken them out the night before and he'd found these rails for them. I think, I think maybe they changed roosting trees, but in the same general area. So he kind of, he kind of this one guy has figured out how to find these birds like, like daily. And um, and then we heard he wasn't our driver though we had another driver so our local guide mentioned that this other driver even though he was driving for someone else was was willing to drive us at four a.m. like before breakfast breakfast was like five thirty and he said he's willing to go out at four a.m. and show you these birds on the roost. And this was already when he told us this. Everybody had already gone back to their rooms. So I had to I had to go around the rooms, knocking on all the doors, saying, "You know, <laughs> do you want to wake up at four a.m. to look for these birds?" And I got, I got two yeses and two noes. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> two people were just tired and they were like 4 a.m mm, no it's okay you guys you guys go so anyway so there was half the group and we went out we met at 4 a.m we we head out in this land rover we get to the gate to the to the forest reserve and it's locked and i'm thinking oh you are kidding this is this is not good you know woken these people up they probably woke up at 3 30 to go and see this bird and um and the guide and the driver were like, oh, no problem, no problem. So they, they drive back to the local village and they start driving around trying to find the guy's house that has the key, <laughs> like the security guard, and knocking on doors and trying to locate that. And I was like, no, nah, this, this is not happening. No way. They're not going to find the guy or they're gonna, it's going to take too long. When we get in there, it's too late. The birds are going to be gone. Anyway, they managed to locate this, this guy. They got the key. We drove back to the gate and into the reserve. And we drove in, it was probably about 15 minutes inside. And the driver's just kind of like looking at the forest. And it all looks the same. It's pitch black. Um, all the forest looks the same. And then he just stops. And there's a, like a little gap in the vegetation that's almost imperceptible. And I was like, you're kidding me. You know, how, how does this guy know that it's right here? And he, he found this almost imperceptible entrance and he stopped, we got out, we walked up this almost imperceptible trail. I mean, it was like literally walking through the forest with just one or two little twigs had been snapped, you know. And he walked up maybe 100 meters up this hill uh, to a spot that looked the same as any other spot. And I'm like, I didn't know even how he'd spotted the start of the trail on the road, you know, but he took us <laughs> up to this spot. And then he just looks up, shines the light, and then as he's... This is these, these, these huge Kalengu rails just sat there staring down at us. I mean, wow. it was just mind blowing how this guy had figured this out. Wow! And they're, they're kind of brown, and they've got these little pale edges to the feathers. Got this kind of like little, really cool, like um, little patterning on them. And then these just oversized red legs. Well, I'll maybe put a photo on uh, social media about these. But quite cool, quite cool looking birds. And we just looked up at these birds getting nice photos and they just sat there you know it was just it was incredible i was so uh i was so blown away by it yeah so uh if you do how get high? back to ghana and this guy oh uh, man how high up i would love to see that yeah yeah were they yeah. pretty high five meters oh wow pretty low yeah not that yeah kind of mid level uh in a tree wow you know i got a, i got i got a really nice photo <laughs> It was great. Huh. And then, you know, the the crags and rails are always tough. There's another rail in the forest that's even more difficult, which I don't think you've seen either, called the grey-throated rail. Right. I haven't even heard that. No. And I've heard about this, and I thought I'd just check on eBird before the tour, and I saw there wasn't even a single record on eBird for this bird in Ghana. I know it's there, and not everybody eBirds, but I mean, it, it, it's often a good reflection about how likely you are to see it, you know, based on how many records there are. And there wasn't even a single record. And after we, that morning, after we went back, had breakfast, and then at 6 a.m., we went back in. You know, it was light, early morning, you know, um, and we're driving in. And the guide said, Keep your eyes on the road. And we're like, Okay. And then we're sort of chatting and, and not concentrating. He goes, No, really, keep your eyes on the road. And we're like, Okay. So everybody's just got their eyes like trained on the road and we're just kind of, you know, chugging along in this Land Rover. And then this this rail just shoots across the road, just, um, and he's like, great-throated rail. I was like, no way. And it was just like, 
you know, we saw it well. You know, we didn't c- catch too much on it. But there, yeah, this grey-throated rail just ran across in front of us. And that was the first eBird record for Ghana. So just uh, mind-blowing. And, and our guide, Paul, he, he's been guiding 10 years now in Ghana. And he said that was the second time he'd seen it. Which, and he, he's a, a full-time guide, you yep. know, doing yep. dozens, dozens 30, of tours a year. So yep. just, yeah, just incredible. So that was a bit of luck. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm looking at pictures right now of the gray-throated rail, and it's actually astoundingly right. similar to the wood rails in Madagascar. Like, I could pass over a photo of this bird and just say, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a Madagascar wood rail. It's bizarre. Um, yeah. Presumably not even very closely related. Just it's just in the rail family. It's an actual yeah, rail. It's, just, it's a uh, completely different family. Yeah, actual rail. Yeah. The exciting thing about Ancasa for me, because a lot of the other rainforest places you go to, they're quite small patches, but Ancasa's big. I think he mentioned it was, I can't remember how much he said it, was it 500 square kilometers or something like that of the reserve plus the neighboring reserve um, over the border. And there's still like forest elephants and bongos and just all these other cool mammals. So it's the kind of place where you feel like you could see anything. Yep. You know, and and that kind of place, you you know where I I get that feeling in in Thailand is always uh, Kankra Chen. Oh man, yep. You know, um, you just feel like you you could see anything. You know, a leopard might cross or or whatever, but it's it's a very exciting place like that very difficult birding but um yeah very exciting yeah i love being in places like that as opposed to like some mm. tiny little patch that has been just thoroughly birded and e-birded and you just know every possible yeah. thing that might be there it, it can still be exciting especially if some of those things are new for you but it's just a whole different thing when you're in full-on wild habitat well let's see your next highlight is arguably one of the cooler birds in the whole world it's the yep. uh Picathartes, or the or rockfowl, is the much I don't I don't like that. That's far kind of boring English name. Yeah, but pretty lame. <laughs> I like the the Latin sounding Picathartes. I chatted quite a bit about this with Mark last week, so I, I won't repeat myself too much. Um, we talked a little bit about um, Ashanti's community work there, that um, they help fund a school, um, and they've also just finished a lodge there. Um, the the proceeds of which are going to go to the community as well. So he's he's very much Ashanti is very much um, involved with communities and and passionate about working together with communities to protect habitat, which is really admirable. And um, he he really feels that if they hadn't done that work there, those birds would be gone already. So it's very cool that they've done that. And um, and as I mentioned last week, um, it's a real kind of draw card bird it's you know there's some countries you have a tour going there and you've just got one big headliner bird that can just bring people will go to that country just to see that one bird and picathides is one of these things it's just amazing looking bird i did mention about what it was normally like um but that was before we'd actually gone on the trip but we had a quite an interesting trip so one of the clients on this tour he has the goal of photographing, um, I think he he realizes he's probably not going to be able to photograph every single one, but as many bird families in the world as possible. So not only see them, but photograph them. So this is his big target. And basically, there's two species of Picathardes, the sort of uh, West African 
white-necked or yellow-headed Picathalis, and then there's another one in kind of Central Africa, from Cameroon through to sort of Gabon and places, the uh, the grey-necked or red-headed Picathalis. But any just to see one Picathalis, Ghana is by far the the easiest place to see it. As Mark mentioned last week, they've never missed it on a tour, so basically you're guaranteed to see it, almost guaranteed to see a Picathalis. And this guy wanted to photograph it. And um, I didn't realize when I went up there, I kind of misunderstood, but they've changed the spot. When I was there six years ago, we went to this one spot. It was about a 45-minute walk, but this new place is actually closer. It's maybe 30-minute walk, um, just at a, a regular pace. And you also get a lot closer to the birds than you used to. You used to sort of sit down this slope a little bit, and you were looking up, and maybe there were like, 30, 40, 50 feet away. So, I mean, they're still, you know, with binoculars, you still got a great view. But then now these birds, they're, they're hopping right by you. You know, they're, they're hopping around in front of you. It's, incre- it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah, that in itself is enough to make me want to go back to Ghana to be able to uh, get closer to these birds and potentially get some pictures or better pictures. Yeah, I think the cameras today just handle those low light conditions a lot better. Yeah, cameras have gotten so much better since I was last in Ghana, that you just have much higher probability of getting a decent shot of these Picathartes and probably a lot of other things as well. And so, um, yeah, so this guy was was really keen to get a photo. And, and I knew he was going to get some kind of photo, but, you know, you need a bit of look about, you know, whether they're going to sit still or whether they're going to perch or whatever. Our local guide, Paul, he said to us before we got up there, he gave us all these instructions, you know, when you get up there, no big movements. Don't start unpacking gear and, you know, Velcro and rustling bags and stuff. You know, you want to sort all your stuff out and be quiet and sit there and then just wait. You don't want to be making all these extra movements and extra making extra noise. So that was our thing. And, and he also said when they first arrive, no photos straight away because, you know, they, they'll come in. They're a little bit nervous to begin with. And if you start clicking, 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 and then they, they take off and they might not come back for an hour or two. So he wanted everybody to get a good look before everybody started taking photos. And we were like, yeah, no problem, that's fine. Um, even the, the guy that was desperate to take pictures of these things, very lovely guy, um, very considerate of other people. And he was like, yeah, no problem at all. Yeah, I can see how a whole battery of SLRs clicking and clacking away could definitely scare away a bird as shy as the Picathartes. You know, one of the great advantages of mirrorless, like the one I mainly use now, this Olympus setup, is that they're completely silent. So I don't think I would be able to resist taking a photo of a bird sitting right next to me in good light. So we get up there, we set ourselves in. One of the guys as well, he wasn't super fit, you know, getting a little older, but um, we gave ourselves extra time. So we actually ended up getting up there earlier than usual. I think we got up there at about maybe... 1 30 in the afternoon you know we used to get there like three whatever we were like a good hour hour and a half earlier than than normal and we'd only been there maybe 20 minutes and around like 2 p.m we had a, a pair and they hopped right by us you know they, they they kind of totally didn't seem to mind us at all they just hopped right by and then they sat in good light right in front of us for several seconds and um, and it was amazing. Everybody was like, wow, you know. And then me and the other guy who were wanting to take photos, we were like, 
okay, it was fine. You know, we'll just wait, you know, find your happy place. Um, and they sort of moved. And then they hopped to another place and sat on a perch right in front of us, beautiful light. And and I started, I knew everybody had seen it and we were all give ourselves a thumbs up. And I, I lifted my camera and the local guide was like, not yet. And I was like, okay, no problem. <laughs> and then And then they hopped away. And we were like, don't worry. And this guy was like, oh, I would have got this amazing photo, but you know, okay, no problem. We're going to wait. And about half an hour later, they came back. Well, maybe an hour later. Yeah. They came back and one hopped by us again and it hopped onto this vine, this looping vine, again, very close to us. But the place that this guy, the photographer was sitting, he was blocked. He had another vine in front of this, this bird's head. So he was trying to take photos and he just wasn't getting it because the head was cut off by this other vine. And me as well, I was trying to take some photos and it just wasn't, and, it, and the bird sat there for like five, 10 minutes. And then it went down and it hopped away. And then the guy is, he's, he's starting to get frustrated now. You can tell he's just like looking down and they didn't come back for like another hour and a half. It was crazy. So we'd had these two, we all had amazing views and we would have got amazing photos right at the beginning, but you know, we'd agreed not to take photos. And then they didn't come back for like an hour and a half. And by now it's like, you know, 4.30 in the afternoon, something like that. That was like the longest wait ever. This guy, the, the, his whole trip had been to photograph this bird and these birds just weren't coming back. And he was just shaking his head and looking at the ground and he just looked miserable. And I was like, oh no. And the guide was feeling terrible and I was like panicking and it was just horrendous. Yeah. So, but finally they came back late afternoon they came in and then they just gave us a great show. This pair, they were hopping around in front of us and perching on branches and and preening and feeding in front of us. And it was just amazing. But it was just that long, long, long wait thinking that he'd come all this way, all the way to Ghana to see this bird and get a photo of it. And he wasn't going to get it. It was um, it was very uh, it was very tough. <laughs> Most people never see this bird in the forest. Again, it's a bird that you only ever see at the rock faces. But, you know, I've actually seen some in the forest in, uh, in Cameroon years ago. Like during the day, there was a, a nest site there. And I think it had been disturbed and they weren't using that nest site anymore. So people just weren't seeing these birds. And I was just walking around in the forest and I, I stumbled across a pair of these birds just in the forest, which is pretty ma magical. You know, I was only like 22 at the time. Yes, I've actually seen both of these species, but yeah, they're very weird looking. Yeah, I think w world birders, I think most world birders have heard of these birds and like really, really want to see them, a big bucket list bird. Yeah, I mean, I would really put the pick authorities spectacle, the whole experience of hiking in there and waiting at this cave and, and having these bizarre prehistoric looking birds come in, just being one of the best, most exciting natural spectacles I've seen incredibly exciting yeah and l like you said it's one of the it's probably one of the coolest birds in the world but the experience you know if you if you if you couple that with the experience in seeing them i think it's really one of the top birding highlights in the world is going to see these birds i don't remember where it ranked in my when we did our top was it 20 birds but it certainly should have been in there if it wasn't i just forgot about it <laughs> Yeah, I just always got this feel from those birds that they were just these incredibly ancient things. And when I was sitting below the little caves where they nest, just thinking 
how long have these birds been here? You know, probably tens, hundreds of thousands of years. Meanwhile, people have encroached all around and destroyed most of the surrounding forest. I mean, it's kind of exhilarating, but sad at the same time. Yep. So your fourth highlight chronologically is uh, in Mole National Park. And that's a completely different uh, zone within Ghana. Uh, I think some people describe it as like a tour of two halves. You have the rainforest half, and then you basically have the savanna half. Um, the southern, maybe third of Ghana is rainforest, and the northern two-thirds is savanna. So Mole is up in the skinny savanna. Um, beautiful park, quite uh, and, and quite kind of wild and big elephants. But I guess your, your highlight is a bird, so I'll let you tell the story. You know, I always feel a little bit relieved when I get up to Mole. Like you say, it's a sort of tour in two halves. I love the rainforest, but it's a really challenging environment to see birds and also to, you know, show people birds especially. So when you get up into the Guinea savannah in the north, um, a lot more open, a lot more light. Um, it's it's a lot easier birding, so it um, takes a lot of pressure off. And there's mammals as well, you know. Um, it's, a, it's a national park. There's um, nice elephants there. There's a bunch of, you know, antelopes and, you know, primates. Actually, we heard something quite interesting uh, we had some elephants there which i assumed were like um african bush elephant or savannah elephant and i took some pictures and put them on an iNaturalist and labeled them um, as such and i got a, a correction back saying that um, these are actually hybrid elephants a hybrid they're in the hybrid zone of uh, forest elephant with bush elephant so that's something that I didn't know. And they actually said genetically, they're actually closer to forest elephants. Yeah, amazing. And all, a bit surprising considering how big those elephants are that they're partially forest because I think forest elephants are smaller on average. Uh, weird. Yeah, but anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, my highlight was actually a bird there, um, the greater honey guide. And it, you know, to look at, it's not tremendously exciting it's um it's just kind of like a regular looking bird if you just saw it in the guide you would just be like okay that's a it's kind of interestingly patterned brownish bird yeah but it, it's not actually uh it's looks that um that were the highlight but it's behavior so they actually guide people to honey you know they'll find a bee's nest and they'll they'll find a, a, a human or a, or a honey badger sometimes as well and they'll um they'll go up to them and start chirping away and try and guide them back to um to the bee's nest so it's it's really amazing uh, i think it's the only honey guide species that that does that um i i actually believe there's one other species that honey guides which yeah the scaly throated which is quite similar in size and shape and even vocalization to the greater so there's like a, a clade within the honey guides that actually honey guides but 90 percent of them do not apparently i wonder if some of them might and it just hasn't been observed some of these rainforest species that are just you know hard to see and so on yeah that's right i mean as a family their their behaviors are pretty little known a lot of them are kind of rainforest birds and there's very little known about the behavior um, so yeah, there could well be more, but uh, anyway, so we were just birding in the savannah there, and then I saw this honey guide and and I, I heard it doing this weird call. I was like, yeah, I never heard that before, and it was in the tree, and it was sort of flying from one branch to the other branch, and it was like it was kind of um, catch my attention, and then I said to the client, look, it it's 
you know, it's actually doing its thing. It's it's um, it's trying to guide me to honey. It's honey guiding. It's honey guiding. <laughs> anyway, this just blew my mind that this I was having this interaction, like a behavioural in- interaction with a bird. It was actually trying to get me to come with it, to follow it. And I, I've never, ever experienced that with a bird before. And it just totally blew my mind. I just could not believe it. And I was just, uh, I was just really taken aback by it the the clients could tell how excited i was totally a whole different kind of interaction with the wild bird i remember years ago that you actually told me that you'd you'd seen this behavior before and i was incredibly jealous about it where have you seen it before i've seen it a few places Uh, i've seen it in ethiopia the most recently i saw it in in mozambique actually central mozambique so yeah, I've just lucked into it a few a few times. I don't know. Is it a function of they do it more some places than others, or just that you happen to be next to a beehive? Or I, really not sure. But you don't see it that often, that's for sure. I mean, I have seen this bird I, dozens of times, and a hundred times in South Africa, and I've never ever come across this behavior before. And it, it sort of got me wondering whether it was a learnt behavior, or. I mean, even if it's got a sort of uh, instinctive base, it's still going to have to be reinforced. And, you know, if people don't respond to that, then obviously it's not going to keep on doing it. So it's quite an interesting thing. I mean, you would, uh, I I mean, certainly I I knew people in South Africa that went into the forest to collect wild honey, but I guess it's not such a common thing anymore. Uh, You know, it makes me wonder, as you say, maybe in South Africa, which is probably a place you've seen that bird a lot, maybe people do not follow the honey guides anymore. And maybe the honey guides have given up that behavior, at least away from, probably in some rural areas, I imagine people still do, but large parts of the country, maybe not. Yeah, anyway, it was just uh, an amazing experience. Um, It really was, yeah, yeah, one of the big highlights of my trip there. So yeah, that was cool. That was the greater honey guide in Mole. All right, well, your last uh, highlight towards the end of your trip was some Egyptian plovers up in, I guess it's northeastern Ghana. For people who don't know, Egyptian plover is this incredibly good-looking, distinctive shorebird that actually makes up its own family. And it's not particularly easy to see anywhere. It's quite localized, and it's, it's along certain big rivers. And so this was actually one of the big things we were talking earlier about how Picathartes, the discovery of accessible nesting caves for that bird really sparked birding tourism in Ghana. This, this was the second big discovery that, that really made it this amazing package for birders was, was Egyptian plovers quite accessible. And it, yeah, it's just an awesome bird. Every time I see it, I just, just flabbergasted. Yeah, see, you mentioned previously to me that um, you were actually involved in the uh, discovery of this site that we went to. How did that come about? I guess tropical birding might have done a couple Ghana trips way back in its earliest days, but then it hadn't done Ghana again. And v- virtually nobody was doing Ghana. But basically, Ghana was came back onto the birding map mainly due to the efforts of Ashanti um, with Mark, who you interviewed last week. And... So I went to Ghana to do a recce for tropical birding and to kind of reestablish our tour there. So I I did a recce and then I was guiding a trip immediately thereafter. But during the recce, I had quite a bit of flexibility in terms of timing. And so I actually went with Mark. We drove all around Ghana in his big uh, Range Rover. And we went with 
a local birder there, um, William Apraku. And William was just starting to work as a local guide for, for Mark. He had been basically a biologist with the Ghanaian Wildlife Services for a long time. And he had worked with this couple, I think Dowsett Lemire, that has done explorations, research all over Africa. So he'd spent loads of time with them. And, and so basically William remembered seeing Egyptian plovers up in northeast Ghana, I guess along the White Volta River, with, uh, with these folks who had been researching and he didn't remember like exactly where, but he, he remembered the area and he, you know, he was pretty confident that we could find them up, up there, but you know, there was some haziness to it. And so during this, during this recce, we, we, Mark and I, you know, we were very intrigued. Like I, I don't think I'd seen an Egyptian plover at that point. So I was extremely enthused. Mark, you know, I, I think maybe I explained to Mark the potential of this bird because he, Mark's not really a birder, but you know, I, I just told him if, if we get this bird, this is going to be this is going to make your, your livelihood. Like, so we went out, William, William actually had a friend in the area, a guy he was still in touch with from the, when he'd done research. And, uh, he got in touch with his friend. We met this guy, this guy kind of knew the bird. He took us down to the river and like immediately we found Egyptian plover and there were, was like eight of them there. And it was just like the jackpot of, of Egyptian plovers. Um, as a great, awesome experience, quite exciting to be on the cutting edge of something like that. And since then, thousands of people have seen plovers in that spot. Okay, that's cool. Never, never heard that before. Yeah. So I mentioned that this one guy, uh, one client on the tour, Ted, who you know, um, he yeah, he was very keen on photographing the the, the world's bird families, and he you know we'd nailed the Picathardis now. So now his number two target was his Egyptian plover. Um, this tour was running a little later than our tours had in previous years. Um, it was sort of April, late April, and we'd been there in March before. And I think the rains had also come early. It was, we had quite a bit of rain on the tour. And I was getting a little worried that, you know, the river was going to be too high because these birds kind of forage along the, the little muddy banks uh, of the river. And, you know, halfway to, through the tour, I spoke to the local guide, Paul. I said, you know, I... Are you sure they're going to be there? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He said he wasn't worried that we weren't going to see them, but he he was just a little bit worried about how close we would get to them, you know, for photos. Anyway, we we you know we wouldn't know that until we until we got there. So uh, yeah, towards the end of the trip, we were staying in a big uh, town called Bolgatanga. We had a nice hotel, and from there it was probably um, an hour hour and a half drive up to this spot, a little town called Sapeliga. And we drove up there, had a few stops on the way, saw a few birds. And um, and when we arrived, there was a local guide that took us out because, uh, yeah, Ashanti's got a little partnership with the community there and they always use local guides and sort of get contributions to the community. And, um, yeah, we all got out and then we walked to the bank of the river and then uh, we looked across on the on the far bank and there they were. They were just, um, there was a bit of exposed mud still there. And um, yeah, we thought, you know, that was easy. But yeah, the problem was, as he said, that they weren't particularly close. Because the river had risen, all the, the mud, the exposed mud on our side of the river had, had been covered. So this was a little bit of a thing. So we walked a little further along and we, you know, we, we looked across and we're thinking, you know, how can we... Because, you know, he had quite high standards for himself, this guy. He really wanted to get a good photo, not just a photo. And we were thinking, how can we do this? And uh, and Paul says, right, I'm going to try and call this bird across the river. 
So uh, he puts a tape on on his the, the the vocalization of the bird on his speaker, and um, anyway, this thing just flies over and it flies quite close to us, and then it sees it's got nowhere to land, and then it kind of like swerves around right in front of us and then flies back, and and Paul's like, quick, 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 take a photo, take a photo, take a photo, and. And um, I guess the guy maybe had it on the wrong setting, or I think you know maybe there was um, his lens was too big, and he, he he didn't get the bird in the in the shot. So yeah, we missed we missed that. And then we're thinking, you know, what can we do here? Because they're not gonna not gonna come back, and there's nowhere to stop over on this side. So we, we kind of looked downstream a little bit, and there was this guy in a, like this big long canoe, and he was ferrying people across the river. And the guy, you know, he had a word with the other local guy, and then he disappeared. And uh, he went down to speak to this boatman, and about ten or fifteen minutes later, this this canoe, this guy came paddling the canoe up the river. Anyway, we we decided right, we're going to send we're going to send uh, Ted across in this canoe. The rest of us will just wait here, and then we'll send him across to try and get closer shots of this bird. And um, it was quite a steep bank going down, and it was really really muddy, you know. So he had to take all his shoes and socks off, and he's kind of wading down there in this mud, and then kind of steps you know these guys are helping him and steps into the boat and then he gets ferried across and he climbs out the other side we're looking you know from i don't know what it was 50 yards 100 yards maybe 100 yards away and um and he sort of gets out on the other side in his bare feet and he just starts walking towards these birds and they're fairly they're fairly tame they're fairly you know they're not too skittish so he was just walking 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 getting closer and closer and um, you could tell how close they were, and we thought, oh, he must be getting great shots here. And, um, yeah, and then uh, once he was done, um, yeah, the, he, he got back in the boat and came back across. But the, the problem was getting him getting him back up this muddy slope. So he was sort of, you know, these guides helping him and sort of taking by, him by the hand. And But his his feet were just covered in mud. So this, this boatman even... He got like a bucket of water and brings it up and starts washing this guy's feet for him, um, and his, and you know and Ted's wife was like, oh no, <laughs> she was so she was like a little bit embarrassed I think, but he he got the total um, full full works. But uh, anyway, yeah, we managed to get him across there and back safely, and yeah, he got some really really good photos. Well, I'm jealous. I've got some pretty good photos of Egyptian plovers, but I haven't been that close to them, so I, I would have been happy to get muddy. You know, it was interesting that the guide almost didn't want to send him across. He said, oh, there's no life jackets, whatever, but um, th- this water wasn't really that deep. You know, a lot of people were wading across. There were some little boys who were taking their, their cattle across, and the cattle were, were kind of swimming. And these boys were holding on to the tails of the cows and getting dragged along in the water, you know. <laughs> it was very funny. But... Um, it was a fascinating area because you just see life unfolding around you and all these locals coming and looking at you and, and waving and kids playing and um, people just doing, you know, farming. You know, it's just a real uh, eye-opener for people that live in a very sort of uh, developed country. Poor in money but rich in other things. I've always found that a very vibrant spot for sure. Yeah, no, it was it was fascinating. There was lots of kids around. There was actually a spot on the way there it was like a little lake and we'd stop just to look at a few birds and all these kids came running across which is always fun and uh, we put a few birds in the scope and let them look um, at these birds and I noticed a lot of these boys had uh, like little slingshots little catapults and uh, and we said what do you use those for and they said oh you know killing birds and we're like don't kill the birds we we come here to look at the birds you know 
but I think it's just a very common thing, you know, that um, that people just people just hunt stuff and and eat it. It's just the way it works. Yeah, the the levels of hunting in West Africa are they, they boggle the mind. I mean, there are just thousands and thousands of square kilometers of of forest that looks pristine that is largely emptied of of bigger mammals and birds. I mean, it's it's quite sad. I mean, you can understand how historically they, yeah, that was a um, very important part of people's livelihoods. And, but there's just so many people now, um, not to mention modern weapons that it is just clearly unsustainable. So something that I chatted with Mark about on the, the previous week is, uh, there's a, a, something that they're looking into now, which is, um, it's kind of captive breeding, Grass cutters, which are these uh, cane rats, these really large rodents. Yeah, apparently they breed quite well in captivity. You keep them in like a little cage, you know, and throw them a little bit of food and grass, whatever, and they just breed like crazy. And and if people, you know, can can breed these and, and eat them um, rather than going hunting, because um, even, even though, though these are not particularly uncommon in the wild, what people do is go out and hunt them but they'll also hunt whatever else as well the rarer stuff so in doing this project you're sort of uh, reducing the the hunting stress on the you know the um, the ecosystem as a whole i actually had a meal of grass cutter at some point uh wasn't too bad yeah i don't know it's a rat i guess it's a it's an indigenous rat and it's probably over hunted but it still seems awfully common so i didn't uh, didn't feel bad about eating one and they just live in in any old field Apparently, though, it's it's kind of a luxury thing. It's not a staple for most people. It's more of a cash thing because a big grass cutter sells for almost $100. That's what I'm told. Oh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I guess if just people have just got used to eating them and they've become a little bit of a, a delicacy, you know, and they just want to eat them, you know, they just enjoy eating them. So, but I mean, I guess as, as well that people can, uh, can make some money um, breeding these in captivity as well yep exactly and even a status thing anyway um i think we're gonna leave it there for this week it's been an interesting discussion about ghana both place that we both know pretty well so uh yeah certainly a fascinating area of the world i think we are gonna play out with the Nkulengu rail that i saw in Nkasa, which is a pretty cool bird and a pretty cool call so uh yeah it just gives you a little bit of an idea of the sound soundscape um at night in the rainforest there thanks everybody for joining us and a special thanks to our patreons if you haven't done so already please check out our patreon page if you're interested in supporting us you can do so for as little as um five dollars but uh yeah thanks again for joining us and we'll catch you all next time Let's <laughs> see.